Zero Money episode 861, Chris Taylor, senior money correspondent at Reuters. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I've never been one to go in search of fancy cars, fancy clothes, big, lavish purchases that just doesn't make any sense to me. So all the things that you see people accumulating in life uh, when they're aiming to get more and more and more, that just doesn't compute with me. I don't understand it. We are in conversation today with one of the top financial journalists in the country. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We have Chris Taylor on the show. He's an award-winning journalist, senior money correspondent at Reuters Money and contributor to Fortune and CNBC.com. We're talking about his money perspectives. This is his first podcast interview. I didn't know this until we wrapped. Pretty flattered. And the lessons he's learned from interviewing some of the world's biggest money minds. We talk about why Chris considers Jack Bogle, founder of Vanguard, who recently passed away, to be one of the greatest financial role models of all time, as well as Chris's dedication to writing handwritten thank you cards daily and the current state of financial journalism. Where's the media world headed? Here's Chris Taylor. Chris Taylor, welcome to So Money. Finally, I'm embarrassed that this is the first time you've been on So Money. We've been friends and colleagues for so many years. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And it's my fault. It's not yours. Well, I have been insisting and you're busy. You know, you're a senior money correspondent at Reuters, contributor to Fortune. You're running marathons. You're parenting. You're being very funny on Twitter. Everybody follow Chris Taylor on Twitter. It's <laughs> worth it. Tell me what is new and exciting. Let's start with something that you're really excited about in 2019. It could be professional, personal. Just let's start somewhere fun. Wow. Well, I guess my current goal is uh, I'm aiming for the Vancouver Marathon, which is in May. So I'm frantically trying to make up for lost time and get fit enough for that. Uh, that'll that'll oh be my, my 11th one. I just did New York in November. It's kind of an interesting lifestyle. I only got into running a few years ago, but it's whipped me into shape. 11 marathons in a few years? I'm thinking at least you've been running for 20 years because 11 marathons, that's a lot to squeeze it in. It is. It's, I do about a couple a year, one in the spring, one in the fall. It's good to have a goal to work towards. Otherwise, it's hard to motivate yourself to get out of the bed, you know? So that's my strategy. Absolutely. So, okay, let's let's try to make a connection here because marathons are extremely vigorous. The training, actually running the marathon itself, you have done multiple of them. And I wonder if that's the sort of um, intensity, focus, stamina, stick-to-itness that is, that has shown up in other aspects of your life, you know, maybe transitioning to money or your career. Do you feel like you're you as a as a marathoner is also in some ways you as a money manager and as a career driven person. <laughs> I'd like to think so. I, I think it's uh, developed new levels of mental fortitude because at the beginning you don't think something like that is possible. But you put enough training in, you add a mile at a time, and suddenly it is possible. So, 
Yeah, I think there are lessons to be learned there. Uh, when I was starting out in journalism, for instance, I I wouldn't have labeled myself as a money expert, but you put 20 years in as I have now and you learn more and more every day from some of the top financial minds in the world and uh, and you get to a pretty good place. So I think the lesson of marathons is just a bit at a time. And after a while, you're a lot farther than you realize you could have gone. Well, speaking of some of these people that you have interacted with, you, your role as a journalist in the financial world has given you such a lens um, a look at how the smartest financial managers in the world and also everyday people you've interviewed, you know, early retirees, millionaires next door. Uh, what would you say is something that you have taken from that, you know, that perspective that you've been exposed to all these perspectives and, and have incorporated into your own life? Was there a transition you made or a decision that you made? Well, I think, uh, I guess one timely example is Jack Bogle who most people will know as the founder of Vanguard and who unfortunately passed away just recently. But I've interviewed him many times over the years. And here is a guy who could have been a billionaire, you know, could have been one of the richest men on the planet easily. But his decision to structure Vanguard so that uh, returns would go back to the shareholders meant that he basically was sacrificing his own gains for the good of everyone else. So the fact that, you know, here is one of the most successful guys in the financial world, but he had such a simple, I don't want to use simple as a derogative term, but he had a simple life of driving an old car and living in the same home and married to the same wife and hanging out with the grandkids. And that kind of just straightforward, simple, clean living, I think, stuck in my head. And I I think that's why he was such a venerated guy. I think that's why people were so distraught recently when he finally passed away. But I would love to have a life like Jack Bogle lived. And uh, so hopefully I'm on the way to doing that part way. Yeah. How would you describe your financial life if there was a a word or if it was a title, if you had a book that was going to capture your financial journey up to this point, how would you describe it? I would say live simply. You know, I've, uh, I've never been one to go in search of fancy cars, fancy clothes, big lavish purchases that just doesn't make any sense to me. So I, I don't want to suggest that I'm a cheapskate. Uh, you know, I'm definitely not that, but all the, things that you see people accumulating in life uh, when they're aiming to get more and more and more, that just doesn't compute with me. I don't understand it. So uh, I think that would probably be my main theme. So I read a lot of people about the importance of less instead of the importance of more. So it's Buddhist authors like Pima Chodron or Thich Nhat Hanh or... Uh, Catholic authors like Thomas Merton or Henri Nguyen, you know, people who uh, impress the importance of taking stuff away from your life rather than adding to it, because I think that's where most people mm -hmm. get into trouble. One of your most recent pieces for Reuters was about a career secret weapon, thank you notes, which uh, I actually heard on this show as well. There was a guest uh, I had on, Todd Herman, who wrote about the alter ego effect. And one of Todd's 
he's a performance coach. And one of his daily rituals is writing thank you notes, which I thought was so just lovely, you know, but also for him, it's been an incredible way to ke- to keep his relationships um, warm and, um, and also, you know, I think there is with our studies, Chris, right. That say that gratitude, having gratitude, which is kind of what happens when you write, thank you, right. Thank you notes. You start to reflect on what you're grateful for can actually lead to a, a wealthier life. Do you oh, agree? absolutely. I, in fact, I would say most of the benefits come from the person sending it rather than the person receiving it. Uh, I personally, I've done this for years and years. I love the practice. And so I pitched it to my editor, Lauren Young, who you know quite well. And she said, well, it's not really a finance idea, but you know, she liked thank you notes too. So she said, go ahead and write it. So I wrote this uh, kind of love letter to uh, thank you notes and it got a ton of response online because the people who are into this stuff are really into it. It's almost like a cult. And so it generated a lot of discussion. I mean, in this day and age, you know, there is some question about the impact of it. Does it actually, you know, brighten people's lives a bit or does it get thrown in the trash? Who knows? But personally, I love doing it. I try to do it every day. And I think it gets you in the right mindset for the rest of the day uh, in terms of being thankful. Who do you write thankful? cue cards to like every day that's I'd have to I think at first it would be easy but then eventually like uh, are you grappling for people <laughs> to write thank you cards to or it or maybe your life is just so such a gift that no it, there's just too many people you want to write thank well, you cards to. Well this might to. be specific to our profession right as journalists but as a journalist I'm talking sure. to sources every single day so for journalists it's not hard you know if someone is given a half hour an hour of their time to talk to me for a story yeah I'm going to write them a thank you note afterwards so pretty much every day I will write one and uh, my wife thinks I'm a bit crazy but hey if it works for me I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> It's what's kept you so hot in the industry, writing for Reuters and Fortune and now CNBC. And what drew you to this space, Chris? I have to ask fellow financial journalists always, because I don't think we grow up dreaming of this job. I don't even think we half the time know this kind of thing exists until we start to get a little older and looking at, you know, the news world and, and all the categories. But uh, what what do you think it is about you, your personality that was so excited about financial journalism. Well, the, I think the deeper story is that goes back to my childhood, which we can get back to in a minute. But in, in terms of yeah. career terms, uh, like a lot of financial journalists, I fell into it because of the first job I got, which was at a newspaper called Business in Vancouver in my hometown. And so once you have that first financial journalism job, then you get the next one, which was for a magazine called BC Business. After that, that led to uh, coming to the Big Apple, where I worked for Smart Money, which was the Wall Street Journal's magazine. And so, you know, as these things tend to do, one thing leads to another. And so my first job in finance led to a career in finance. So take me back even further. You said, you know, a lot of it is rooted in your childhood. So tell me even back when you were younger, growing up in Canada, what was, did you have a financial experience or something happened that got you kind of a little bit more curious than your peers sure. about money? Well, uh, you probably wouldn't know his name down here in the States, but in 
Canada, my stepdad, who I grew up with, was pretty well known in the financial uh, industry. He had a, a investment firm called Phillips Hager and North, and he was the Phillips. So as a kid, you know, just toddling around the house, I would see him with his stock charts. And back then, of course, there was no Yahoo Finance, no Bloomberg terminals. So he would hand uh, track his favorite stocks using pencil and, a, you know, physical chart. And so I would see him doing this as a little kid. And I was, was wondering, what the hell is he up to? And eventually, as I uh, grew up, I understood what he was doing and he was quite successful at it. And so that I would understand what was going on. Eventually they would buy me a few shares in stocks. So for instance, they bought me some PepsiCo as I was a little kid and uh, they bought me pay less drug stores, which is a pharmacy chain in the West. And then these, because of dividends, these uh, companies would send me checks every quarter. So as a little kid getting checks in the mail for doing basically nothing, I really enjoyed that. So uh, that was how I got my uh, taste for investing was from my dad, who was a champion investor and who planted these seeds in me. And uh, I guess those seeds kept growing. Yet, what's your philosophy on investing today? There's a lot of... uh there's a lot of, of, of a bit of a pivot, right? And even amongst the financial planning community, like you should just pick index funds. This is not a stock picking game. Stock picking is, for, you know, is a fool's game. And so what's been your um, philosophy on that? Well, as uh, Jack Bogle uh, created, he created the entire index investing industry, basically. And as Tony Robbins mentioned to you, I absolutely think that Index investing is the way to go for, say, 95% of investors out there. You know, some may have specific interests that drive them. For instance, myself, I, I tend to go for dividend stocks because that's what I like. That's what I enjoy. But I think for the vast majority of people, yes, you want to stick with index funds, target date funds potentially, and just stay with that because trying to beat the market is, uh, is a fool's game. What's been your biggest financial win, Chris? Something that you feel really proud of? Biggest win? Uh, we've done quite well in real estate, I guess. My wife and I have owned a couple of apartments over the years. And it's not really a reflection of our individual smarts, but just the fact that we live in New York City where everything tends to go up. <laughs> we uh, made six figures on our first apartment when we had our first kid. Then we needed a little more space. We had a second kid. And so we bought another apartment. We made another six figures on that. And so we've done quite nicely in real estate. And now actually we're looking for a house in the suburbs as growing families often do. So I hope that uh, the third uh, kick at the can is going to be successful as well. Yeah, it's always a head start when you buy real estate in New York, say, and hold on to it. That helped us a lot, I know, in our financial planning. And I, I was fortunate when I moved here in the early 2000s, took on a small studio in 2004 and held on to it for 10, 11 years, uh, which That's helped brilliant. him, I guess, not get kicked out, not get kicked <laughs> out of New York City uh, because... You know, so many people get priced out 
but you know, it's often having that equity that helps you to to move up in uh, in terms of space and all of that. What would you say on the flip side was your biggest failure? Well, you may have seen the column I wrote about it, uh, which was that I did buy some Lehman Brothers uh, back in the day. I'm at peace with it by this point, but at the time it was uh, it made my head explode. You know, this was taking listeners back. This was during the financial crisis when uh, everything was hitting the fan. And so Lehman by that point had dropped about 90%. And I figured, well, because my my natural inclination is as a value investor. So I thought, hey, this storied, long-lasting firm has dropped 90%. You know, there's no way that they would let it go out of business. So I'll pick up some Lehman Brothers. So I, I didn't spend a ton of money on it, but I spent a little bit of money. And uh, of course, they let it go to zero and I went bankrupt. And so it blew up in my face. And that was my biggest failure. But it was an excellent lesson, let me tell you. Ever since then, I've never bought anything that I haven't understood. Kind of like Warren Buffett advises, you know, if you don't understand something, just stay away from it. And that's, I think it served me pretty well. What's a story that you're really itching to write and it maybe hasn't come together for any host of reasons. Maybe it's because it's a sourcing issue or you're trying to find the right sources. I guess one is that I'm curious about and I still haven't explored is uh, how machine learning and AI is going to affect the investing business. You know, I see that a lot of these big money managers like Fidelity, like Vanguard are hiring these people. So it's got me curious. What, how are they going to put this to use? Um, how is it going to affect you and I as individual investors? I'm just not sure. So that's kind of something I want to dive into and find out what's going on. Cause you know, there's a ton of stuff going on. There's just, they're just not telling us quite yet. <laughs> so for, for a journalist, I think that would be interesting to find yeah. out. What's your number one habit? I mean, as somebody who is so dedicated to running and that's, you know, mental stamina, physical stamina in your financial life, what's something that you have habitualized to help you with uh, your finances? It, it's interesting that we're, we talk about habits because I am super into all the literature about how the brain works and how you need to uh, get these habits into the wiring of your brain for it to take effect. So I'm reading stuff like that all the time. Um, but one tip that I think is useful for most people in terms of spending and saving is that when you have the impulse to buy something, which is frequently, especially online, give yourself a couple of days. Don't don't tell yourself that you're not going to buy it. Just give yourself a couple of days and you'll make your, the decision later. And what I found is that about 80 to 90% of your purchases will not be made because you will have, you know, some reflection. You will think about it. You will realize, actually, I don't need that particular item. So if you just give yourself a little space of time, then different processes in your mind and your body take over and you make wiser decisions. So that would be one habit that I think is super useful for people. Self-control, <laughs> distance. No, you're absolutely uh, it right. It is, totally. It's those dopamines, and man. Another one, just uh, generally speaking, is that I make sure to max out my Roth every year. I love the Roth IRA. I think it's the greatest uh, investment vehicle ever. And I think everybody should have one if they qualify with the income limits. 
And um, for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's you use uh, after-tax money so you don't get a tax break immediately. But eventually, at the end of the day, when you need it, all your earnings will be tax-free. So that is a nice feeling, and I try to max that out every year. I agree. Although there are some people who always ask the question, but what if I don't know where my taxes are going to be in retirement? Is it safe to assume that they're going to be higher? And I would say, yeah. (laughs) I mean, just look at the way tax rates have gone in the past. People just aren't sold because of that sometimes. And so Uh, what would you say to that? I think... Everything that comes out of the Roth, both the principal and the earnings, are tax-free. So I don't think it's going to affect uh, anything in retirement. Now, of course, other withdrawals, such as 401k, um, those may affect your tax rates at that time. But I think Roth IRAs are, are a unique beast, and that's why they will not give you a tax hit down the line unless the government uh, changes its mind at some point and decides to tax those earnings, which I guess is certainly possible. Right. I guess people think, well, if my taxes are going to go down in retirement, I'd rather get the tax benefit today, you know, than wait till I'm 70 when I might, you know, it might not have been as right. big of a tax I mean, benefit that in the future. You can take the benefit today, but I think uh, the history of uh, human behavior shows that if you can delay <laughs> taking the benefit, that's the wiser thing to do. Because whatever benefit we accrue right now, we tend to waste, right? Right. right. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. You're right, Chris. But okay, so here's a question too. Um, as there's so much, there's a lot of brouhaha over journalism and journalists and fake news and this and that. Has that affected your, your career or like, has that disrupted to any extent what you have been writing about or have been putting out in the world? I, yeah, I don't see that the whole fake news issue has impacted our particular niche very much. You know, I try to stay away from. Uh, politics in my articles because whatever you say will be uh, attacked by a blizzard of online locusts <laughs> within minutes. So I, I just try to stay away from uh, that stuff entirely. I think the bigger thing that's affected uh, our careers is just journalism outlets trying to figure out how to make a buck. That is, you know, we're being hit by a Category 5 hurricane here and everyone's trying to find some shelter and figure out how to survive as a journalist in this day and age. And it's not easy. And I don't think anyone has figured it out. So, you know, that is a story that is still being written and uh, I hope they can figure it out for, for our sakes (laughs) and for everyone. Yeah, I know it's, there's not one blame, but I think, you know, there's just so much content now and so much 24 seven access to content that the content that is actually good and important, it's hard for it to rise to the top, you know, and it's hard for people to really, um, people are taking for granted content because there's just, it's everywhere and no one wants to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants, nobody feels like they should have to pay for good content. I think the lesson so far of this, uh, category five hurricane is that the best of the best will probably be okay, like the New York Times, like the Washington Post. I think they'll be fine because people are willing to pay for that. I think the real danger is in local news. Uh, You know, local papers across the country are still getting hammered. Um, And I don't see a way out of it, really. 
So uh, if we lose local journalism at that extent, I think that's bad news for the country uh, as a whole. Yeah, agreed. Chris Taylor, let's do some so many fill in the blanks. Okay, hit me. All right, this is, <laughs> just fill in the sentence. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is? I would not touch it for a couple of years. That's something I learned from uh, Susie Orman. She says, in any major life event, good or bad, you're going to be emotional. You're going to not make wise decisions. So just don't touch it for a couple of years. Good. I like that advice. It sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier about just like giving yourself time and space, even if it's a small or big purchase. Cool. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is... We go to Haiti every year. Uh, might sound strange to go to the poorest nation in the hemisphere, but my wife is Haitian. My kids are half Haitian. And we want to make sure that they experience the world outside of New York City. And uh, Haiti is, absolutely feels like a different planet. Since when have you been doing this uh, tradition? We go every year. We've been doing it the past few years, and we stay with members of my wife's family who still live down there. Uh, this year, we're not sure because there's some unrest right now. There are demonstrations. Uh, Haiti tends to blow up every few years. But we're hoping that things calm down because as a cultural experience for my kids, it's very important for them to know their heritage. Absolutely. That's a special experience for sure. All right. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is? I wish that my hometown was about to become the biggest real estate bubble on the planet because I would have just stayed there and flipped houses for uh, the next decade and become a multimillionaire. But uh, sadly, I didn't realize that was going to happen. Well, how did you not know? I mean... <laughs> Vancouver, when I was growing up, was a very sleepy little town. and uh, But now... You know, it is more expensive than New York. Yeah, I got to get out there one day. All right. Last but not least, I'm Chris Taylor. I'm so money because... I am a journalist in uh, an industry that has probably been one of the hardest in the world to make a living in <laughs> for the past uh, 10 or 20 years. And I'm still here. I'm still standing. So I guess I must be doing something right. You are. Keep up those thank you notes, man. That's it. You're going to get one too. Thank you. Well, no pressure on me, right? I feel like I got to start really getting my my cards out and my, my special pens. Chris Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. I'm glad we finally did it. Thanks so much to Chris for joining us. You can read his work at Reuters.com as well as CNBC.com and Fortune.com. And do follow him on Twitter. It is worth it at Chris Taylor underscore NYC. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and I hope your day is so money. 